And we're going to turn now to chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, in the Bibles in your pew, I think you'll find that on page 807. And I would ask now if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me for a moment. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us this morning. A familiar passage, but one which is rich for us. We ask the Lord that you would guide us by your spirit this morning as we turn to it and ponder it and send us from here with enriched with a deeper understanding of your grace and mercy to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you can't miss it this time of year. I think probably uh, many of you might have it, one of these in your home, on a mantle or a table. Uh, you see them outside on, on lawns, in front of homes. Uh, you even see uh, one when you came in here this morning, and you couldn't miss it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Nativities, of course. Nativities are everywhere this time of year. Uh, baby Jesus is lying in a manger in one of these displays. And Mary and Joseph are, are standing over him, and animals are around them. And then on one side, you usually find the, the shepherds standing there. 
and then on another, you find uh, three kings bringing their gifts. And all of this is against the backdrop of some kind of a, a stable with a, with a star up over it. And often they're, they're quite beautifully done. And uh, sometimes the figurines are done in, in porcelain or painted and, uh, beautifully or, or carved in wood. The problem, of course, is, as probably most of you know, is that there are an enormous number of inaccuracies in that scene. First of all, the wise men uh, probably were not kings. Almost certainly they were not. They didn't have crowns like these kings out here have on the, in front of the church. Uh, there may or may not have been three of them. We, we really don't know. Uh, we just know there's more than one because it's plural. Um, third, they were not there uh, at the same time that the shepherds were there. Uh, that's uh, overlapping two things that didn't happen at the same time. And when they did come, they came to a house and, and not a stable. Um, the star was not there when the shepherds were there. And finally, if, if the scene in your house or someone has some of those cotton balls around it in order to simulate snow, we really don't even know what time of year this took place. They could have been sweating in the eastern heat for all we know. And you respond to all this by saying, okay, anything else for us this morning, Mr. Grinch? <laughs> See, the biggest problem, of course, is that if we attempted to correct these wherever we found them, we would have to rewrite probably half of our Christmas carols. Now, it's not my intent this morning to be a curmudgeon. I say all this somewhat lightly. At the same time, it is, by the way, a, a gentle and good little reminder to us all that uh, to read the scriptures carefully, and not let our preconceptions guide us as we read it, to remember that we need to come to the scriptures with an open mind to see what they really say, and not let our preconceptions guide us. And that's what I hope we can do this morning as we take a, a look at these 12 verses. And just to tip my hand a little bit here at the beginning, um, when we come to the end, I am going to argue that those nativities that I just described for you, even if they aren't strictly historical, they proclaim some wonderful truths. And so don't go and rip them off your mantle or your table. So let's turn to the passage before us. And there's three things that I believe we can be reminded of from this passage this morning. If I had been... Um, Better prepared, I would have submitted this in time so that you could have a little outline in your bulletin. But let me just give you the three points that I want to make. First, that the wise men that we see here uh, need to be seen, I believe, as the first fruits of those from all nations who will come and worship Jesus. Secondly, to see Herod as one of the many rulers of this world who will oppose Christ's kingdom. And then finally, to see God safeguarding his son through it all. And in him, all of us who are united to him. So take, let me take a look at these. First of all, the wise men as the first fruits of 
those from all nations who will come and bow down before Jesus. We read in the first two verses, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. One of the first things to know here, right off the bat, is that Matthew anchors this account in a time and a place. In the days of Herod, in, in, Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. This is the language of history, by the way, when we speak of times and places where certain things took place. It's not the language of fable or myth. One of the distinctive features of the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, is that the writers are careful always to say, this happened here and at this particular time. And when so-and-so was reigning, they link them historically to times and places because they are writing about things that actually happen. Amen. And that's one of the first things to note here. If you had a time machine, that if you could, and you could set the dials in that time machine to about 2,000 years ago, and you could set the particular place, and then you could walk through it, what this means is that you could actually see those magi, those wise men, entering Jerusalem. And what would you see? Who are these wise men, these magi from the east? Well, there's a lot that we don't know about them. Um, originally, the, the, the term magi referred to a fairly elite priestly caste who had special powers to interpret dreams. But by the time we uh, 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 here, by the time of the New Testament, the word magi or wise men had come to be a more general term for uh, people who, uh, uh, various men who were interested in dreams and astrology and mystical books and those kinds of things. And the general consensus says that these individuals who came to Jerusalem here um, had probably were probably some kind of court astrologers of, of some kind, uh, probably from a city like Babylon, where there had been a large Jewish population at the time, and where they also would have been exposed to various uh, Jewish writings and prophecies. And as such, these uh, men probably traveled maybe a thousand miles or more to come here and to worship this king. And uh, perhaps they came from a closer place, we don't know. But either way, they didn't travel alone. They probably traveled in a caravan and uh, for security and with supplies and other supporting, uh, supported tasks, if you were. And that caravan arriving with these magi is probably what caused, uh, contributed to that commotion when they arrived in Jerusalem. What we do know is that they had observed something in the skies. I don't know exactly, again, this too is a, somewhat of a mystery. We don't know exactly what they observed. Scientists have tried to explain it. They've looked back at various historical phenomena that might have taken place around that time and tried to link this, but nothing seems to perfectly fit. Um, and you can, you can look this up on your own. Just go home and Google Star of Bethlehem and you'll have plenty of Sunday afternoon reading. 
but read all the different theories. Some think it was a comet, because comets were often uh, seen as omens of important events. Some think it was a supernova. We just aren't sure, but whatever this is, it, it, there's something supernatural about this. There's something unusual about this. There's something of the fingerprints of God on this. God was using this to draw these men and say, and they somehow saw in these, uh, uh, in, the, in the sky, uh, with their limited understanding, some indication that a king had been born in Judah. And it led them to want to come and worship this child. But the most important thing about these magi is this aspect of worship. They came to worship. I'm not a fan of astrology, by the way. And I don't recommend it. And by the way, I don't think Matthew is recommending it here either. Um, but in this case, God used a star to alert these magi that someone had been born king of the Jews. And notice that he wasn't born to be king. He was born king. Amen. He was king from the very beginning. And God alerted these magi to this. And not only that, that this, was born, this, this king was born, but somehow he was worthy of their worship. And so they made arrangements, and they took probably months, maybe even up to a year, in order to make this journey there and back, in order to worship Jesus. And that is what our God does. He takes people where they are, with the knowledge that they have, and he speaks to them, and he leads them to Jesus. But all this begs a question. Why? When the Son of God takes on human flesh and is born in Bethlehem, apart from Mary and Joseph, and apart from some shepherds and Simeon and Anna, who Luke tells us about in his gospel, the only other people we are told who take note of Christ's birth are these foreigners from a distant land. Why? Why? I think I understand why. The prophet Isaiah, I think, understood why. Let me read a few passages to you from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, very early in the, in the prophecies of Isaiah. It shall come to pass, Isaiah writes, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come. And say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. And then as you move to the very end, you, you see this theme in different places in Isaiah, and then you see at the end, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's, but the Lord will arise upon you, and nations shall come to your life, and kings 
to the brightness of your dawning. You see, from the very beginning, and Isaiah knew this, and we see it in, in all of the scriptures, from the very beginning, um, God has made clear that what he was doing in and through Israel was not just for Israel. It was for the whole world. It was for everyone. And sending Messiah, an anointed one, that would be for all people. You see it at the beginning in Genesis. We begin Genesis with the, with the creation and all is good. And then the fall, beginning in chapter 3, and, the, and all of the fallout from the fall, if you will, the consequences from the fall, through chapter 11. And then, all, and then bang, in chapter, in chapter 12, God announces his plan of redemption. This begins there. He calls Abraham. And what's the first thing he says to Abraham? He says this. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this theme continues through scripture till you get to the very end in Revelation where you see a picture of the culmination of God's plan and you read in Revelation chapter 7, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed with white robes, white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And Matthew here wants you to see it. He wants you to see that God's plan of salvation is for the world. It's for everyone. He emphasizes that the beginning of his gospel here in chapter 2, right after Jesus is born. And how does he end his gospel? He ends it in, in chapter 28. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations. All peoples. This is why we're here. This is why we are here this morning. We are a long way from Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And most of us look a lot different. Than Jesus or any of his disciples looked. My great great grandfather was a digging peat in the bogs of Ireland. I don't know what your history is, but I know it's not mine isn't Jewish. But God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever from every nation, any tribe, any language, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came into the world because everyone needs a savior. Every man, woman, child, or whatever tribe, or whatever background needs to be reconciled and brought back into fellowship with God. And only Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, only he can do it. Only he can do it. And so, that's why the Magi come. 
That's why they come from a foreign land. As the first fruits of so many others that will come. We don't know how much they knew about all of this, by the way. Uh, this much we're told, going into the house, they saw the child Mary with the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, and gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They knew, somehow they knew that this, this one was worthy of their worship. And it says they fell down before him. Fell down. There's a there's a spontaneity to that. There's almost a there's an uncontrollable aspect of falling down. As a as a collapse, if you will, before this one who is majestic and glorious, even though just at this point a babe and an angel. There's something that they just cannot do anything else but fall down and worship. I don't know about you, but although I, I think I know a little bit because I was watching while you were singing, you're a lot like me. I saw one person raising their hands. I am like many of you among God's frozen chosen. I have a, I have a hard time expressing my emotions physically. But I think the time will come when we see Jesus, whom we all fall down. And we will show it not just with the lips, with our lips, but we will show it with the expressions of our whole selves and our bodies. And consider the gifts. I hope Mary got some other gifts, a little bit more practical, maybe a stroller or a camel seat, onesies and diapers, because gold, frankincense, and myrrh don't seem a whole very practical to me. But I'll tell you this, they're costly. They're costly. They're gifts fit for a king. And that is in part how we worship. We give the Lord what costs. We give him what's valuable. Because Jesus is worth it. He is worth all that we have and all that we are. And that's what these manchines are doing. They are worshiping with the best that they have. Their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love what John Piper says about missions. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. I love that phrase. Succinctly sums it up. The problem is that so many people in this world are not worshiping the true and living God. And that's why missions exist, to call people to bow down and worship this one who is, who is King and is our Savior. And so these magi are the first fruits of men and women from every tribe, every nation, every language who will bow the knee before Jesus and who will say, you are my Lord, you are my God, you are my Savior, all I have is yours because you are all I need. Let's take a look now at Herod. And I'm going to try to build a briefer here. If the Magi are an example of the many who will come and embrace Christ and his kingdom, Herod is an example of the many rulers of this world who will oppose Christ and his kingdom. When Herod hears that the Magi 
uh, have come to Jerusalem looking for the one born king of the Jews. We're told that he is troubled. And Timothy Keller tells us that this, probably, this is probably one of the greatest understatements in Scripture to say that he was troubled. He was alarmed. And it's not hard to figure it out because Herod, we know from history, would brook no rivals. He was fiercely protective of his throne and his kingdom. This is the same fellow who even had his own wife and two sons killed, lest they threaten his rule. And so when he hears about the birth of a child who is to be king of the Jews, he is not happy. He is troubled, and we're told that all Jerusalem is troubled with him, because they know that when Herod is troubled, there's trouble. <laughs> and so what does he do? He consults the priests and the scribes to learn more about what the scriptures have to say about the coming of the Christ, the coming of the son of David, and they tell him that he's born of Bethlehem, citing well-known verses from Micah, and that gives him the place of the birth, and then he calls the Magi and words about the time of the star's appearance, and that gives him the time of the birth, and then he sends them on their way and says, okay, this is where to go, and then when you find them, come back, let me know so that I can go and worship him too. Now let's just dig into this just a little bit here and see something. Notice, first of all, that Herod has a high regard of the scriptures. He knows the Jewish people have been waiting for a divinely anointed king, a Messiah, in the line of David for a long time. And he doesn't dismiss that. He knows it's based upon prophecies recorded in the scriptures, and he doesn't dismiss these. Rather, he seeks out those who will teach the, who teach the scriptures and study the scriptures, the priests and the scribes, in order to find out where the Christ is to be born. He has demonstrated here what we might call a high view of Scripture. And at the same time, notice the complete disregard for the Scriptures. He recognizes as authoritative, but not an authority to which he himself will submit. For Herod, the Bible says it, he believes it, but that doesn't settle it. He will not submit to the implications of his life. Rather, he will resist. And I ask you, does this sound like anybody you know? I know it sounds a lot like me. It sounds a lot like me. That I read the scriptures, I believe the scriptures, but boy, do I sometimes have a hard time submitting to it. And even wanting to sometimes. There's a little Herod in all of us in this sense. And so before we come too down, too hard on Herod, pointing the finger at him, let's remember first to deal with the law in our own eye. Because this is characteristic of humanity. It has been from the beginning. You go back to the very beginning. This is exactly Adam and Eve's problem. They knew what God had said. That wasn't the question. The question was, would they submit to it. And that's been our problem ever since. And that's why we need a Savior. Because Jesus comes to save us from our sin of rebellion 
and the turning away from the God who has made us. But having said all that, Herod is indeed a special case. He stands here as an example of those who are described in Psalm 2 this way. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anoint, his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it's clear here that however sweetly Herod may have talked to the wise man about wanting to come and worship this one born king of the Jews also, he has absolutely no intention whatsoever of doing that. It's abundantly evident from what takes place in the following verses when he actually conspires to kill Jesus. But I want to speculate here for a moment, if you just bear with me. Was killing Jesus his first intent? Was that his intent from the start? There's no doubt that he never intended to worship them. But the thought has occurred to me, perhaps he had another plan. Perhaps he wanted to, when he found out where this one was born, perhaps he wanted to woo this one and bring him into his orbit. To bring in him and his family to the palace, to bring him under his wing and merge his own plans with the divine anointed Messiah. Just imagine how much greater power he would have if he were aligned and seemed to be aligned with the glory and power of the longed-for son of David. It would be like having, uh, what's that new baseball player, Shohayatani on your team, right? Just like Satan must have thought when he tempted Jesus to worship him and he would give him all the kingdoms. Hey, if I get him on my side, what a team we can make. Now, full disclosure, I'm speculating here. I... Don't know whether this may or may not have been in, in Herod's mind, but I do know this. This is exactly the way the rulers and the power brokers of this world think today. It's exactly how they think. They're delighted to be seen as a Christian. They're delighted to be seen as religious. They're, they're delighted to align themselves with the, with the popular understanding of, of religious believers and to maintain a veneer of faith so long as they can ultimately call the shots. And it's only when they discover that they can't control Jesus, when they discover that he will not share his glory with another, that Jesus requires, they will discover that Jesus requires repentance from sin and recognition of him alone as Lord. It's then that the rulers and authorities and the power brokers of this world seek to snuff them out and push him to the side and get rid of him. And with him, this church is well. So whatever Herod's plans, whether he went to plan B after plan A had been thwarted, or whether he planned to kill Jesus from the beginning, whatever his plans, Herod stands here in this story as a picture of the powers of this world, animated, no doubt, by the principalities and powers in heavenly places, opposing and persecuting Christ and his church. Those who set themselves against the Lord 
and is anointed, as Psalm 2 says. And every age has its heritage. There's not been a time since that the spirit of Herod has not been alive. And Jesus, as Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. And so it will be until Jesus comes again. And we all experience it in various ways as we read the news and even in our own jobs and wherever we might be. The spirit of Herod is alive, but praise God. Praise God. This passage ends with an encouraging reminder. We've seen the wise men as the first fruits of all those who will believe from every nation and every tribe. We see Herod as an example of the powers of this world who will oppose Christ's kingdom. But the passage ends, we see God safeguarding, safeguarding his son. And I would say by extension, everyone who is in him, in Christ. Verse 12 tells us that being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that is the wise men, departed to their country by another way. God knows Herod's intentions. And now, having led the wise men by the star, he now leads them by a dream to go home by a different route and not give Herod the information he desires. And then in the verses that follow, an angel warns Joseph to flee with his family to Egypt. And in this way, God safeguards his son. Wonderful. Whenever, God purposes, whenever God's purposes are threatened, by the powers and principalities of this world, God always thwarts their plans. Because God's plans cannot be thwarted. Amen. He always thwarts their plans. When Pharaoh tried to get rid of the Israelites, he protected Moses and raised him up to lead Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. When Saul tried to kill David, God's anointed king, the Lord protected him and promised to secure his posterity forever. When Babylon conquered Israel and destroyed Jerusalem and all, all hope seemed lost, God kept a remnant secure and brought them back. Whenever the religious leaders in Judah tried to kill Jesus before his time, the Lord shielded him and protected him. God's covenantal promises cannot be thwarted by any power in heaven or on earth. And that's what we are also reminded about here. God will not let his purposes of redemption be thwarted. And this safeguarding of Jesus is a picture, I believe, of this, of the safeguarding of us as well. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and are in him by faith, we are in him. We are in the one who is perfectly safe and protected. Listen to these wonderful words from the beginning of the first letter to uh, Peter's first letter. He writes, according to his great mercy, God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Yeah. And listen carefully, yeah. who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation will be revealed at the last time. Just as God has protected the Son from Herod, He protects you in this world. And that's a wonderful encouragement. But in spite of the fact that the Herods still abound, 
that will not keep you from the perfect salvation and culmination of redemption that God has planned for you in Christ. In conclusion, I just I want to come back now to that nativity scene we looked at earlier. And just uh, suggest to you this, that even though there are a number of inaccuracies in it, um, it's worth keeping on your table or your mantle or your front lawn. Because even though the wise men and the shepherds were, were never there together, and they probably never met in this life, they are among the great multitude to whom God has revealed himself, who have bound down to worship Jesus, and they will be together. In fact, now are together, worshiping Christ. And so, look at them together and say, yeah, they were together then, but they're together now, in Christ. And even though the star shined only for the Magi, that star reminds us of the truth that has shined for all of us, and still shines. And so let the star be there as a reminder of that light that shines on all to whom God is revealing himself. And even though the Magi came to a house and not a stable, they and we with them are all strangers and pilgrims in this world until Jesus returns without a true home until we get to our home in heaven. And so let the stable remain as a reminder that we don't have here a true home, for we have a home that's waiting for us, that Jesus is preparing for us. And above all, when you look at that nativity scene, think about who's not there. Herod. <laughs> no place for Herod there. No place for Herod, because he ultimately what is inconsequential. Because God safeguards his people.